Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. I want to welcome back to the podcast the friend of the podcast and frequent guest here in these parts, Emma Burnell. Uh, say hello, Emma. Hello. Hello. Um, today we've got quite a lot of I just want to do a general roundup of all the all of the bits and bobs because there's been a lot happening in the uh, presidential race over the past few weeks um, as we've been focused on coronavirus and on uh, and on the the, the protests for Black Lives Matter um, there's actually been a lot going on sort of behind the scenes and, and in front of the scenes that will affect the presidential race um, so to kick us off I thought it's just worth doing a, a, a roundup of where we are in the state of the polling um, because in recent weeks, we have seen a significant uptick in uh, Vice President Biden's um, performance in the race. And <laughs> I say this with my fingers crossed and my breath held. In head-to-head uh, polling against Trump, Biden had been, for most of the year, Kind of polling, you know, somewhere in about the six points positive, um, so looking looking comfortably in the lead. But more recently, and for the first time since the coronavirus crisis, he's been um, significantly above that, um, and and has broken past the fifty percent margin. So he's now um, in the poll of polls average. He's in he's at a little over fifty percent, um, which suggests that, you know, if that were to hold true in a national election and and in the swing states as well, Biden Biden would. Uh, Biden would have to lose votes for Trump to win, not just not just undecided swinging in Trump's favor. So, yay! How do we how do we feel about this? How se- how secure are we in these numbers? Oh, they're not going to hold at that level. Um, this is a moment, and by the time we get to November, there'll have been twenty other moments. Sadly, um, you know, you, we know how quickly everything moves on. Um, but that's a great place to be right now because you can lose a bit without it being too difficult. Um, It is a bit tighter in the swing states. um, And that is a worry because, um, you know, we, you can, as we know, you can win the national popular vote and lose the election because the electoral college is bonkers. Um, (laughs) But I mean, it's a great place to be. I wish we were here slightly later in the year. Um, but yeah, there's no bad news in there. Yeah, (laughs) there is no bad news, except I think, you know, Democrats, uh, as a party are exceptionally prone to pants sweating. So what we tend to do is go, oh, it can't be true. We'll never lose. And as soon as a poll shows up in Trump's favor, it's, oh, this is exactly what I thought you see. We'll never win. Um, so I think, you know, everybody chill, which is a common refrain on this podcast. Like everybody be cool. Just chill, (laughs) chill the fuck out. It's okay. Um, but I also think there's something, there's something, even though I agree with you that this is sooner, sooner than is likely to be entirely determinative. One thing that's nice about this is the polls actually have an impact on how Trump runs the race, right? Because he doesn't just sit back and go, okay, well, we'll see, you know, I'll just stick to my game plan, what have you. When Trump is down, he flails and he panics and he just starts throwing stuff up against the wall, which is kind of 
what you'll see in some of the other news stories this uh, this this week. So it feels to me like it's you kind of want Trump on the road because he gets really volatile and he gets really manic. Yeah, and I mean his Twitter has been reflecting that very much. Um, I understand that they're airing Trump ads in DC, which is never going to vote for Trump, just on the off chance he sees them on his own television and feels like he's ameliorated. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's clearly in a bad place. Um, and he is going to panic and he is going to thrash out. Um, that will be at the expense of some vulnerable groups. So yeah. I wouldn't just want to focus on the political advantage of that without thinking yeah. about what the negative impacts will be. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, but that's another thing. I mean, if Trump were in any way sane or responsive to responsive to facts, then what he should be seeing is that his attempts to demonize black uh, black Americans and to suggest that those who are protesting um, for equal treatment and justice under the law are somehow threats to threats to our personal health and safety are really not working, right? <laughs> really not working. It's you know it's going the other way. But he's so deeply convinced of his own kool-aid right he's so he's so fully bought into his own propaganda um that he he won't be able to process to understand that the strategy is not not paying off for him as it didn't in 2018 i mean he did the same thing in 2018 in the midterms um with trying to get people terrified about this supposed caravan <laughs> caravan of migrants who are you know several thousand away miles away from the southern border but oh be afraid be afraid and people were not and afraid shut up about it the instant the election was over yeah. even though the caravan hadn't actually arrived by that point so it turns yeah. out it wasn't that big a threat <laughs> yes well i mean as a side note people walking slowly in large groups is not the biggest threat in the world world like women and children slowly walking five thousands of miles away from your border i mean it takes some some effort of imagination to turn that into something scary anyway but i guess you can particularly from the guy who loves making friends with people like putin and bolsonaro mm. and kim jong-il yeah <laughs> Um, but yeah, so his attempts to demonize the Black Lives Matter protesters haven't paid off in particular, um, you know, since the, the protests having initially started off with some some violence and disruption have have been quite peaceful um, and, you know, it, enjoy broad public support. So, you know, you would like to think that that would cause him to go, OK, this is not a working strategy. I'll try something different, but he's just going to double down on demonization. Yeah. Well, he does. It's all he's got. Right. It's all he's got. Um, Never had. So, so possibly on the back of his desperation strategy, Trump's been um, throwing a lot of other things out there. One of which is this week he um, the Trump campaign announced that they were they were pushing for more debate than is kind of has become the sort of standard in American presidential elections. Normally, you see three debates. Usually one is kind of a town hall format. Um, often you'll have, you know, some some more foreign, foreign policy focused things, um, et cetera, and, and usually spread across a range of networks. Trump's saying he'd like four debates rather than three. Emma, what do you think? Should the Biden campaign seize on this opportunity or should they be more wary? I mean, they must have done some polling to, 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 to indicate that they think that would help Trump in a certain way. Um, I, 
I mean, it's so hard, isn't it? Because you and I watched those debates last time around. And we were like, oh, my God, he's completely lost it. You know, that weird monstering of hovering over Hillary. All of that stuff was so bizarre to me and, and to you. And yet he didn't lose the election. So there's obviously something that other people are seeing that I'm not. So it's really hard for me to comment on what that is and whether that would, in fact, help Trump in the swing states. Mm. Well, I think this is where a lot of the Democratic pet wedding coming comes in, isn't it? We don't know because we cannot relate to the people who see Trump as appealing. So we cannot second guess what reaction they might be having. I mean, what strikes me is... His turnout amongst non-college-educated white voters has gone down slightly in terms of, you know, Biden's been able to take a few more of us. And I'm guessing that's who they want to appeal to in a sort of macho way. But if he behaves as he did at the last, at the debates with Hillary, mm. I just, you know, the suburban vote is so important. And I just wonder if that's not going to be completely um, turned off by that kind of behaviour. Yeah, the suburban vote is what really kicked in in 2018. Mm-hmm. And I I wonder if what he's trying to do is maximise his base vote, but I wonder if that doesn't turn off that suburban vote and essentially make it a wash. Yeah. I, I think you might be giving him too much credit for strategy. <laughs> I mean, I have... I mean, I, my, my theory is that he might be offering these debates just because he was pissed off to have been accused of cowardice for not wanting debates. So he's like, so he, so he goes, Oh yeah, I'll show you. I want extra debates. Um, but my, my, my thinking is so normal in the normal rules of political gravity, right. In, in normal life, back before the world turned upside down, you would always say that the incumbent is generally favored, um, favored in it. Like it's, it's, you know, if you're an incumbent, it, you're favoured in the election, but you probably want fewer debates. Is the is the is the conventional wisdom because you're the president, you can go out, right? You can go out and be presidential, get gravitas, etc. Whereas a debate puts you on an equal footing with your with your opponent. Um, so you know, in theory, he should be asking for fewer debates. He also, in my view, did not perform very well. And even though he won the election in the previous round of debates, his numbers did go down immediately after those debates. So it didn't particularly come across well for all of these reasons. Um, But then you'd also say, well, Biden is currently quite a bit up. He's, you know, in some polls, 10, 12 points up over over Trump. So... So the conventional wisdom would be, well, actually, if you're down, you need all the debates you can get to sort of call yourself back up. So so maybe it's that. Yeah, I think that's probably the most likely. Um, you know, not Trump himself, but one of his political advisors will be thinking in exactly those terms. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see if it helps. Another thing um, that sometimes gives candidates a bump in the poll is their conventions. Now, the conventions this year are going to be <laughs> a little unconventional. Um, what with the coronavirus happening, um, so this you week get that line straight out of Rocky Horror, right? My <laughs> like unconventional conventionists. <laughs> uh, we need a song for that. 
uh, I, I, yeah. is, is it too early in the podcast for us to burst into Hamilton? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's probably unusual. laughs> the convention is restless. <laughs> um, so yes, speak for me. <laughs> <laughs> So Trump announced this week, Trump's campaign announced this week that he would be hosting his nomination speech, not in the uh, convention uh, venue in North Carolina, in Charlotte, North Carolina, but in a separate event that would be held in Jacksonville, Florida, um, which is just very the good place. So to my good yeah. out there, this trash fire of a city, yes, it is all the things that you think it is. Jacksonville, Florida is just the perfect place for a Trump speech to happen. Um, so, but, but one of the reasons why that happened was because of uh, a dispute that Trump has between, uh, with the governor, the Democratic governor of North Carolina, who's been trying to impose, um, safety restrictions on large events. Um, and obviously, you know, not necessarily that thrilled about the Republicans coming in and possibly, possibly serving as Alexis in infection in his state. Um, what do we think about that? I mean, yeah, Jack, Jackson, I mean, I know very little about Jacksonville, but I know Jacksonville Jaguars rule, uh, apparently. <laughs> uh, Bortles is a football player, I think. I understand he is a sporter of some kind. <laughs> he, plays, he, he, he participates in a sport involving a ball. Um, but yeah, my entire knowledge comes from the good place. Uh, I've never been to Florida uh, when I did my big tour of the States, my hair was frizzy enough by the time I got to Alabama, I wasn't going further <laughs> <laughs> um, But I, uh, I mean, there, there are two impressions I have of this. One is he will get a big, big turnout in Jacksonville. They are his people. It will look great on TV and it will contrast with whatever Biden does, which will be much kind of safer. Yeah. The other is, it just doesn't seem like great political strategy to go to a close knife edge state and potentially spread a bunch of infections amongst your most enthusiastic supporters. Mm. Um, I mean, that just doesn't like killing your supporters just doesn't strike me as a great, great. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I don't know, Emma. That's so old-fashioned of you. No, no. <laughs> Apparently that's how we roll now, you know. But, I mean, I think that's that's the thing. I mean, even this week, so Trump is hosting a, a huge um, rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, not a swing state. And there's a lot of controversy around this for all sorts of reasons. Tulsa is the site of one of America's worst ever, um, basically, racial mass murder attacks um, uh, in which the, uh, the, 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 the town of the, the black black owned um, city, city in town in Tulsa and its uh, its high street, effectively, which was a center of black wealth and commerce. Um, was basically, you know, everyone was murdered basically by a a, a white militia of people um, keen to basically just stamp out black success. Effectively, um, some a hundred years ago or so. Militia is too fair. They were a mob. Yeah, they were a mob, but they were a semi-official mob. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't just random people. Yeah. It was. Uh, there was. There was official police support and willingness to look aside. Anyway, Tulsa is the scene of all this. Um, so, uh, and and why Trump has gone to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is not a swing state, it feels hard to suggest that he's doing anything other than 
trying to call in that history, which is gross. He was originally going to do it um, on, well, basically what is a what is a a, a holiday for. Well, for all, it ought to be a holiday for all Americans, but uh, a, a date called Juneteenth, which is the commemoration of the date that uh, that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was uh, was activated. Um, he was originally going to do it on that date, and then um, basically, through after much uproar, decided not to. Is put it back to it's now happening tomorrow. Um, what do you make of all that? Like, what's going on? What? Why? I mean, I think we know why. It's 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 fascism. It's, I just don't want it to be true. It's not whistling anymore. It's just open fascism. Yeah. And yeah. He's chosen to do this in this way at this point in time. Uh, you know, the the man has no shame. Hmm. Um, and again, it might rile up a percentage of his base into supporting him more. But those people who are going to be that riled up were never not going to go out and vote for Trump. Yeah. So it's not it's not persuading. There's no persuasion going on. It's just a pure base strategy. And in particular, the swing voters, the sort of suburban swing voters and um, you know, persuadable voters who even even the the people who voted Trump last time around, um, but were were swung at the last minute. They are especially unlikely um, to buy into this racist, uh, racist fear mongering. It's really, um, you know, this is the thing they hate the most about Trump. It's the single thing about him that puts him off the most. They're kind of open minded to the idea that maybe a businessman is good at running the economy. They're kind of open to the idea that, you know, actually, maybe we should get tough on China, even if, you know, they don't quite understand how that trade dispute is helping or hurting us. But they understand the race point and they just find it gross just it's repellent yeah yeah and it, again it just baffles me why they think that this is a base election when 2018 went so badly for them mm. yeah well i mean i think because trump's a malignant narcissist and he's unable to recognize error or course correct in any respect i mean i mean one of the things that strikes me there was quite a lot of discussion a few years ago but I have a, he didn't really want to win in the first place. Mm. Uh, actually, it was all just so he could launch Trump TV and blah, mm. blah, blah. And maybe that's why he's doing all this. Um, not so he can deliberately lose the election. I'm not suggesting mm. that. But so that, you know, it, his base is economically far more important mm. than, um, than his politics. I think that's a really interesting idea that he... And it's, there is... There is ample evidence for the theory that Trump's presidency is not at all about anything he intends to do on behalf of the country, but purely about creating and strengthening a particular brand that he can monetize ever after. Um, that's just so bizarre. I mean, it's it's plausible and yet equally almost incomprehensible. Like. It's certainly an odd way. To, wa- to yeah. want to do such a big thing, be president of the United States, for such a stupid, petty reason, I can't get my head around it. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've all learned what the word emoluments mean over the last four years. Right. <laughs> well, um, you know, I don't know. Frankly, I think there are some people in Congress I would still like to <laughs> clarify that word with them. <laughs> But yes, absolutely. So um, 
so Trump is going around killing off his supporters by hosting big events in which many of them will get sick and die. Um, this is not great because I do not wish Trump supporters to die. No, and that's the thing. It's like, why are we the ones that care more about that than he does? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it is worth saying, I think, you know, a reasonable counter argument that could be made is, of course, that we have had huge Black Lives Matters protests all around the country and all around the world, also during a time of pandemic. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course, there is a profound difference between um, coming out onto the streets in mass gatherings to um, to fight for your lives and demand basic rights um, and coming out to basically, you know, ego stroke a malignant president. But the the end result of both is that we're yeah. driving people out of their homes and 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 putting them at risk. Both sets of people have made a choice. The problem, um, in terms of both sets of people, is the spreading, the super spreading. Now, most Black Lives Matters protests have been outdoors, which yep. does make quite a big difference. Yep. Um, as I understand it, the Trump rally is indoors. Yep. Because it looks better on the telly which is really all that matters. <laughs> Probably because Trump doesn't really like standing around outside. <laughs> well, unless it's outside a church holding up a Bible at random. <laughs> Briefly, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's... Um, you're right that I don't think we can judge those people going more. Um, I mean, I judge them for other reasons, but not the, the, the choosing to have a political gathering reason but the point is is they're not choosing to have a political gathering Trump is yeah and he's the one who's standing next to Fauci all the time talking about you know their amazing approach to fighting the coronavirus so he should know I mean he doesn't know anything but he should know better (laughs) Well, though, as a sidebar, Anthony Fauci has has said uh, recently that he hasn't spoken to the to the president in weeks. You know, as soon as their their TV TV episodes finished, the president lost interest and and apparently lost interest in managing the epidemic altogether. He's over it. He he feels like, you know, we've moved on. We've had a mid-season finale and now it's time to go back to the to the A plot line. This is how he thinks. But meanwhile, Nearly 800 people are dying in the US every day. Absolutely. Week. No, day, I think. And numbers are shooting up in Oklahoma. They're shooting up in Florida. All of the places he's going are currently um, on the rise for infections. So that's the other thing, isn't it? The, the Northeast, blue America, as it were, Northeast California, they had the initial big spikes. And it's kind of understandable in a way, if you're from the big plains of Oklahoma or what have you, that you weren't seeing, you weren't experiencing the same crisis, but you were experiencing the same response, you were being locked down, et cetera, et cetera. So I can kind of see why they they were a bit like, oh, no, we need to be, uh, you know, get back to the economy rather than fighting the virus. But now it's coming for them. And... But they've already made all these decisions, which is probably why it's spiking. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's so dangerous. And, and God, I mean, I get it. I want to go out. I want to see people. Um, I want to do more than sit two metres away from you in your garden. <laughs> as, as lovely as that was. Um, but I, uh, I don't want to do that at the risk of vulnerable people's health. It's my health. <laughs> Well, exactly. You know, our, so the health of ourselves and others. Um, 
But, you know, it feels it feels like it's not just the right, though. It feels like the whole country is kind of over the virus and, and ready to move on. And, and it's just still there. It's still there, guys. It's still oh, and, killing and, a lot of people. Here, to be honest, I was in the supermarket earlier and um, social distancing is completely gone. Yeah. But half of us wearing masks. And, it, you know, it just feels like everyone's like, oh, la, la, it's all over. And it's just not. No, no. Worry. So, um, anyway, in other news, slightly better news, <laughs> um, liberals and uh, Democrats had some a couple of very encouraging pieces of news out of the Supreme Court this week. Um, two important Supreme Court rulings this week gave encouragement to those of us who have been worried about the conservative-leaning court. First, the court ruled that laws preventing workplace discrimination based on sex do apply to discrimination against LGBT workers. Then the court ruled that the Trump administration could not eliminate the DACA program for undocumented migrants brought to the U.S. as children because the court ruled that the Trump administration did it in an, quote, arbitrary and capricious way. Ooh, snap. <laughs> um, Emma, we, that doesn't mean that DACA is now protected as a program, per se, that the court ruled that the Trump does have the right to abolish the program, which was, of course, originally created as an executive order, but the, he needed to provide a better rationale for doing it, given that people were relying upon it in good faith. Um, it gives us a breathing space, doesn't it, to hopefully get past the, uh, the, 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 the next election and hopefully maybe President Biden can sort things out. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, fingers crossed that's exactly what happens. Um, I mean, the politics of this is fascinating because um, at least one of those votes, Neil Gorsuch, who was a mm. Trump appointee, voted with the um, with the liberal, with the four liberal judges. Yeah, that was the LGBT ruling. Yeah. Um, and my understanding is that's because he has a very literalist approach to the law. Yeah. Um, and the argument was made that um, whatever other conflicts or otherwise, whether you fall, whichever side of that fence you fall on, about sex-based rights versus gender-based rights, the point and a completely clear point i think is that if you present as a gender different from your sex and then that you are discriminated against as a result of that it is quite clearly a sex-based issue yeah so yeah. that's why they were able to use that protection in that fight so it's really interesting in terms of actually blending sex and gender in a way that has sometimes been quite separate in this debate mm -hmm. um, and you know workplace rights for people you know nobody should be under discriminated against at work because of how they present how they dress um you know what gender they exist in so yeah I uh, yeah, and it, you're right. So for trans people, it applied that way. And then for gay people, it was that if you were fired for having a relationship with someone of the same sex, when you would not be fired for having a relationship with someone of an opposite sex, sex was at play, right? Yeah. So 
And it, and but I think you're right. It, what's interesting is Neil Gorsuch was a, a darling of the Federalist Society because he's a a a, a, a literalist, um, you know, a strict a strict constructionist, as they say it in terms of the Constitution. Um, but words, you know, if you are going to take that view, then sometimes that's going to cut against you because you know words can be used in in a variety of different ways, um, and and you know won't always mean exactly what conservatives think it does. Yeah. No. And I think it's. Um... I mean, they, they uh, other conservative judges are f- absolutely furious with him, as I like in their minority mm. um, ruling. Um, you know, absolutely blasting him. But but I mean, you know, he's made a fully constructed logical argument, yeah. <laughs> and, and the fact that he chose to step up and write that is really interesting. Mm. Well, do you know, I think it's a bit of a tradition in the court. Um, my understanding is that it, it is often the case that um, they will give the writing of the decision to the person who's p- perhaps the kind of hardest to persuade um, because they want to give them the honor of it so that, you know, to incentivize them to, to, to vote the way. So the people, other other judges in the in the winning block, so to speak, will will kind of say to Gorsuch, well, if may have said to Gorsuch, you know, here's your chance to write a really brilliant opinion. And um, not that that would persuade him, but it would uh, help help keep him on side a little bit, maybe. <laughs> but, also, if you are the hardest to be persuaded and then you are persuaded, you probably know the arguments best and most inside out. Yeah. And you and you probably will, as is the case with Gorsuch, really want to explain your thinking um, because you might not you know, might not have bought into all the arguments that were sold to you. So you will probably want to clarify which ones you didn't, didn't accept. Um, or indeed, or indeed, sometimes judges come up with their own reasons for why they vote the way they do, which they're perfectly free to do. No, um, no, no uh, good on him. Fair play. A, um, you, you, you can't fault the ruling from a liberal perspective. But B, he's actually made a, a compelling argument from what would be considered a traditionally conservative perspective. And similarly, John Roberts voting um, in favor of darker protections, again, as I said, doesn't necessarily mean that the program will survive because he made clear that he thinks that it is within the president's power to do this. But by, I think, you know, interestingly pointing out that that, that they'd they'd barely made an attempt to justify it or come up with a credible rationale. They just did it in what what seemed like an arbitrary and capricious way. Um, And because people relied upon this program, it's not just a a kind of incidental government program. It's something that was fundamental to people's livelihoods. Um, John Robert said, no, you need to you need to justify this fully. You need to think it through. You need to come up with not only a rationale, but also a, 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 a think through what's going to now happen to these people um, and, and come up with some kind of actual policy process, not just not just refute or revoke an executive order. And I thought that was, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. It was uh, it was thoughtful. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing with most of the judges on the Supreme Court with possibly one exception. And <laughs> um, yeah, they are, they're not there because they're dumb. They're not there just because they're going to do what the conservative wing of the world tell them to do or the liberal wing of the world tell them to do. These are people who have, you know, won judgeships, you know, are in clever people, even if they're clever people I massively disagree with on many, many occasions. Um, so I think it's, you know, I don't think we should be that surprised that Supreme judges, Supreme Court judges can be thoughtful. Mm. Uh, maybe it just says so much about the moment that we live in that we are. <laughs> well, I just think we haven't seen much of it lately, have we? I mean, 
Or, or at least, you know, it, the, the court hasn't necessarily been showing itself at its best in recent years, let's say, um, especially on the most controversial cases. I, I think it's interesting to think through what the political impacts of this could be, though, because for years, um, the courts have been the the singular driving force of the of the right wing movement. Um, and so, you know, some people always argue whenever a ruling goes our way, oh, this is going to fire up the, the, the Republican base, which it may do. Um, equally, I think the fact that DACA is only sort of tentatively preserved um, might give Democrats a really strong get out the vote message um, for our people. How, what do you think the impact will be politically? Well, I think it's fascinating because um, the argument that you often get for those people who don't particularly like Trump's racism, um, don't particularly like the um, sexism, the allegations about sexual impropriety, the argument that sways them is, yeah, but judges. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, they've, they've massively stacked every other court in the land. But the two highest profile judges are Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. Yeah. Um, and I just don't know whether the yeah judges argument is going to um, is going to hold when the yeah judges that Trump got through have actually turned out to well, at least one of them has turned out to be a more nuanced thinker. Well, hold your hold your horses on that, Emma, because they could overturn Roe versus Wade any minute now. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying... <laughs> I mean, that's probably going to happen. I'm not saying that we don't think that there aren't going to be terrible things down the line. Yeah. I'm just saying that um, I think the yeah judges argument has less power now today mm. than it did yesterday. Yep, potentially. Well, we'll see. Um, I think, you know, to be fair, I would actually like to go the other way a little bit, and I'd like to see... Democrats start taking the courts a bit more seriously. We tend to, we tend to you know, not. It's the Federalist Society equivalent. Yeah, I mean, where is it? <laughs> why, ha why haven't we been able to? Especially, I mean, a lot of lawyers in the Democratic Party. You'd think some of them would want to club together and and go through this. Not that I think the Federalist Federalist Society is a great thing, but I think it's a worse thing if it's unilateral. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, eh, eh. What are you gonna do? <laughs> Right. So um, one other bit of, uh, of exciting news today, which leads into what I want to do next with the gut check game. Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota announced that she was formally withdrawing from the race to be Biden's VP, saying that she thought the nominee should be a person of color. Emma, some have suggested that this was her attempt to uh, not just stand up for um, diversity on the ticket, but specifically to throw Elizabeth Warren under the bus as VP nominee. Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment upon that. But what do you think? What do you think she was trying to do here? Um, well, there's a, I mean, that's quite a bad faith interpretation uh, of what's quite a good faith move. It, it, it is snarky. Um. I, oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it it's become clearer in the last week or so that Amy Klobuchar probably wasn't the right choice for a variety of reasons. Yeah. If Amy Klobuchar saw that writing on the wall and thought, well, how can I get a little bit of political capital out of this? I can't blame her. <laughs> um, if that political capital was specifically about throwing Elizabeth Warren under the bus, then I could blame her a little bit more. But 
I think she's probably right. Mm. Um, stick Elizabeth Warren in Treasury. Um, you know, put her somewhere where she can fix the economy. But um, as VP, I do think the powerful imagery of a black woman in that role would be really quite important. Mm. Uh, and and I think that much as I love Elizabeth Warren, and you know that I do, I I think it should be a black woman. Um, yeah. I think we've got a really old white dude as the candidate. And I, the Democratic Party has been run on the sweat and toil of black women for so long now that maybe they deserve a little representation somewhere. More than a little. <laughs> um, absolutely take that point 100%. I think it's, as you alluded to, it's almost certainly the case that Amy Klobuchar was was probably out of the running for ben, for Biden's VP anyway, um, not least because she supervised the very police department that uh, that was responsible for the death of George Floyd um, right. as Attorney General. It's not not ideal, um, not not directly her fault, but still not not a position you want to be in in this day and age. Um, so adios to her, and and you know, and so long and thanks, as they say, so long and thanks for all the fish, Amy. Um, do I agree that the candidate, that the nominee needs to be a, a person of colour? I can see the appeal of that. I really can. Um, I guess my only hesitation is, I think, you know, I always take the balance of governing an election. And, you know, it's, I think there are fantastic female candidates most of the female African-American candidates that have been put forward, though, don't have huge national profiles. And so, I mean, it, it kind of feels anytime you restrict yourself to a um, use to purely thinking about people of color, it kind of feels like it's hard to not argue for Kamala Harris. Right. Because because she to me, she feels like she's the only one who ticks every single box of having um, you know, a big national profile um of you know be coming from you know being having representation having performed very well in a public stage um nationally getting on well with biden um you know looking like she's ready to lead etc cetera, etc cetera. um and and i think you know i've got no problem with that um but i think part of my hesitation is that the and i think for a lot of people whoever the vp is may very well be the president in four years time because yeah. Or, or sooner, God forbid. But but Biden is very likely to just run one term. So we're not just picking a VP candidate, which can be a kind of a partnership thing. We're probably picking the next Democratic president, or one hopes. So then you've got to you've got to apply an extra an extra level of is this the person I want to see? Yeah, I mean, and that that's that's completely fair. And while I liked Kamala Harris, she wasn't my choice for. For nomination yeah um but four years on the job um isn't is something that's worth you know uh, we hope four years on the job um yeah that's that's not to be sniffed at but i think if biden does choose early to decide not to run again mm-hmm. what he should absolutely do is make sure that the vp has great opportunities to gain more governing experience through the role yeah, for sure. I think you should anyway, right? We just need to we just need to build more, you know, a bigger, richer field and especially a bigger, richer field of 
of female and minority candidates who have been given those those opportunities and those kind of front page moments. Um, so 100 percent. Which actually leads us nicely into the conversation I wanted to have about the VP choice, um, because I thought it would be worth um, playing for the gut check game this week. I thought it would be worth playing a little game, thinking through the VP candidates who have been considered um, and what we think the strengths of each of them might be. Now, um, in terms of electoral attributes, I think it's commonly said that there are basically elect there are electoral attributes, which may be things like potentially influencing a swing state or bringing diversity and representation, as we've just talked about. I think things like influencing Sanders voters or bringing kind of a, an important part of the coalition on board with you, who might be difficult for Biden to otherwise win, um, being a strong debater or a campaign performer. These are all attributes that, you know, that that, that some candidates have more so than others. And then there are governing um governing aspects like having strong relationships in Congress that might help you to to put legislation through, bringing executive experience, showing that you can run a big team, etc. Um, having, you know, experience and credibility on the economy, experience and credibility on foreign policy. Um, so I'm going to pull out some names um, just randomly from my trusty Red Sox baseball cap, uh, read them out, and we can have a little chat about what we think are the best attributes of each of these people. So first off, I am going to go with, oh, here is Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, I mean, she's shown great leadership um, over the, the recent crisis and has been popular as a result. Uh, Michigan's a very important state for the Democrats. It sure is. Um, so having someone popular in Michigan can't hurt at all. Um, she's not a person of colour. She is not. <laughs> um, but so that would be my negative in terms of what I've just said. <laughs> yeah. So if I had to pin you down to a single positive attribute that you think is her best, is her best attribute that she brings to a, a VP ticket? Popular in Michigan. Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's no small thing. No. <laughs> It was interesting. Nate Silver had a, a video uh, this week where he was talking about um, whether or not picking a VP from a particular state has much of an impact on that state. And he was kind of dismissing it, saying, actually, it's not that much of an impact. And, um, you know, I think it was only about a 0.7 uh, improvement. I was like, I'll take 0.7. I'll take whatever. I think there's a difference between just being from there and recently being really popular during a crisis from there. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, so I like I like that. I would probably go with my best attribute, similar, um, but I would specifically pick her experience as an executive of a large state, um, because I think from a governing point of view, I, I'm not sure how much of a difference she'd make in Michigan electorally. I think it's important, but I actually just think the fact that she's demonstrated the ability to run a, a big and complicated state with um, with a lot of the kind of the issues at the writ small that happen in the country as well. A lot of the kind of economic uh, insecurity that exists, et cetera. She's been really smart and really competent on it. It gives me a lot of confidence in her ability to, to lead at a higher level. Yeah. Right. Another candidate. Here's an interesting one. Um, so I've got, I'm going to do two at the same time because they're very different, but uh, so, but let's do the Tammies. So I've got Tammy Baldwin and Tammy Duckworth. 
Tammy Baldwin is a Wisconsin senator. Um, and I believe I'm right in saying she's the first openly LGBT um, senator. Uh, and Tammy Duckworth is a uh, Illinois senator and is a veteran, um, lost uh, lost two limbs in the war, so she's wheelchair bound, um, but and just basically, and she was the first senator to give birth while being a senator, which I think is super cool. <laughs> that is cool. Um, I would say Tammy Duckworth in particular, um, we often talk about representation and what we tend to mean that as shorthand for is race. Yeah. Um, but there is a real problem of um, disability representation. Mm. So that definitely deserves consideration and a shout out, um, particularly in a country with such a messed up healthcare system um, where, I mean, you, you know, when you walk the streets of, of, of any big city, the people who are on the streets are more frequently than not people who are disabled. Yeah, I uh, totally agree with that. I mean, I think Tammy Duckworth is like, if you were designing a representational token, <laughs> like she's not, she's brilliant. But like, if you if you took out a pen and paper and were like, I'm going to make a list of all the attributes I would like, you know, she's mixed race she's um you know she has she's 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 got a disability she's a veteran she's female she's you know um also really smart so you know representing for the smart people yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah she brings all that 100 percent. tammy baldwin um i think is also brilliant um and very impressive i i kind of just want to give her she's from wisconsin she wins in wisconsin yeah, like, I mean, yeah. It's a Wisconsin thing. Works for me. Like um, Wisconsin is so important. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I mean, that's it, isn't it? Really, she's from Wisconsin. I mean, I'm sure she's a wonderful woman with loads of other attributes, <laughs> but she's from Wisconsin. She's got a lot going on, and she's from Wisconsin. <laughs> right. Um, I'm gonna. I've got another name here that I'm gonna pull out, which I had not heard much about until recently, but in the wake of George Floyd's killing and the protests her name has come forward a lot more um and that is val demings who is a representative from florida um she is an african-american woman who was um, um uh, probably her biggest claim to fame before that was she was a uh, she played a prominent role uh in the impeachment hearings as a as an impeachment adjudicator um what do we think about her um yeah she's an impressive speaker um i heard her speak the other day and um you know, a, a wonderful mix of impassioned and controlled. Um, you know, really got it just right, I thought. Um, and that would be really helpful on the trail, mm. um, particularly given that Biden isn't always a wonderful speaker. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be really useful. Um, yeah, she's a very impressive woman. Yeah. Yep, I, I agree with that entirely. Um, I'd also throw in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't want that to be the answer for a third time. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I feel like I'm getting really transactional. Having said it, maybe it doesn't matter that much, but still, Florida. Um, I think the reason why Florida in particular is, is interesting to me is I think it's a state where even if you did get only a 0.7% bump, Florida is pretty much a 50-50 state consistently in every single election it's it's 49 51 it's you know you know it's yeah, 50 it's also like you say that 
but it's the permanent heartbreak state. <laughs> <laughs> but what if it wasn't, Emma? <laughs> what if this time texas it's not happening <laughs> i know i know florida always breaks my heart but what if this time it learned its lesson and it really thought about it and it decided to do better florida come on florida you can do better <laughs> we believe in most of your parts florida although clearly <laughs> earlier on we were quite dismissive of at least one of your major cities <laughs> Yeah, Jacksonville. Um, yeah, I guess I guess my thing with Florida, with 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 Val Demings in Florida in particular, is I think there has also been since the last presidential election, there has been a change in um, the electoral makeup because a law was passed making it um, um, restoring restoring voting rights to to former felons uh, from the state. It has been unclear yet what, if any, impact that will have on the election. But I think that makes it another state where African American voter turnout and a really really solid African American turnout operation um, is going to be absolutely fundamental. So I'm for anything that helps us do that. But also because it's just the right thing to do to help people vote. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you know the 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 anti um, voting rights um, of ex felons and loads of other people is just a, just a vile, vile strategy. <laughs> right. The next name I have here, I've pulled out, is former National Security Advisor Susan Rice. Oh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, she worked for Obama, right? She did. Yep, she was Obama's uh, NSA direct, NSA advisor, and uh... the only reason I'm hesitating is because I I like the Obama White House. I love the Obama White House, um, <laughs> but elections should always be about moving on. And if you've got Joe Biden and Susan Rice on the same ticket, I I, I worry about that slightly. Mm. I mean, you know, she's she's very, very clever um, and very, very interesting. Um, but I don't see the forward momentum in that ticket. Yeah. I mean, I think Susan Rice is terrific. Um, you know, given that we're meant to be picking positive attributes, I would give her... <laughs> so like I, I think you have to say foreign policy experience, right? Yeah. Like she, she, you know, foreign policy is a huge part of the presidency, and actually often a role that's that's partly devolved in responsibility to the VP, who does a lot of head of state type work for the for the administration. So I think she would do that piece really, really well. My hesitation with her is not quite the same as yours. It's more that she is not. I don't think she's ever run for and won elected office. Um, she's a career foreign policy strategist and professional diplomat, which is excellent, highly commended, strongly, strongly supported, good work to do. Um, but the task of winning an election is quite different than that. Um, so it's it's hard to know until you've performed on a national stage in an election how well you'll do, which is why I always tend to prefer people who do have electoral experience. Yeah, 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 that that makes sense. Great. OK, Um We've only got two left, <laughs> and uh, the names the names are Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. Which one would you like to do first? We've missed someone. Oh, we've missed a few, so we haven't done ever. So we've got we've got a few. We've got Michelle Grisham, Stacey. Sorry, <laughs> Stacey Abrams. Oh, Stacey Abrams. Uh, yeah, should we do Stacey Abrams? She's been actively campaigning for it, which she I has really like about her. She's like. <laughs> I'm not messing she, about. I want it. She has been actively campaigning for it. She's awesome. 
I have a I have a sneaking suspicion that if she were being seriously vetted for it, she wouldn't be actively campaigning. So I wonder if she's really on Biden's list or not. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, but maybe she just is approaching it a different way. She does approach things a different way. And that's one of the things I love about her. 100%. Um, so what's, so what's, what's the best attribute for, for Stacey? Oh God, I wanna, I'm going to say bloody Georgia, aren't I? Um, <laughs> I uh, no, I'm not going to say Georgia. I'm going to say her approach to getting out the vote. Yeah. Um, I think if she's on the ticket and then has a say in the campaign, there'll be a really, and you know, she's already doing it, but um, how amazing to put that approach at the heart of the campaign. A hundred percent. I that I I would agree. That is also my best case for Stacey Abrams is that she is excellent on voting rights issues. She both knows knows it very well, has done great work on it, um, and it is really important. And I would feel very good about our ability to run an effective GOTV program if she were on the ticket. Um, so fantastic. I oh, think my thing I'd say that I think is really important about Stacey Abrams is. There's long been this awful stereotype of the angry black woman mm -hmm. that is just so racist and sexist at the same time. And so many um, black women through the years have felt that they've had to temper themselves. Yeah. And she doesn't. And I absolutely adore that because she has absolutely every right not to when what happened to her in that governor's race. I mean, it was so disgusting. So, you know, I think that actually challenging that stereotype by allowing yourself to be all the flavours of human and not having yourself cut off is a really exciting thing about her. I agree with all of that. And I would further add that it, she is herself a living embodiment of the ways in which the system, not just in a one-off way, but in a deep and structural way, deprives people of opportunities that they deserve. Because she, like, to be honest, in a free and fair election, she would have won that Georgia governor election. Um, 100%. There are so many examples of um, of where, you know, the, the vote was suppressed in that race, um, both legally and and, and dubiously. Um, and she was running against the person who was running the election. Um, the knock on effects for that for her and people say, oh, well, she's gone on to have a really big, you know, be very successful and very prominent in the party. Yes, that's all true. But had she won that race, first of all, she could have really made a substantial impact on the lives of, of, of Georgians, especially African-American Georgians, and would have handled, for example, the crisis very, very differently, the COVID crisis. But also, I suspect she would be higher up on Biden's VP list. She would be much higher up, I suspect. She might be the front runner if she had already had statewide experience. But because she was deprived of the opportunity of stepping up from her role as Speaker of the, of the Georgia State House, um, she's been disadvantaged and that may have knock-on effects for her for the rest of her career through no fault of her own so you know it just it, it yeah it's enraging and she's she's right to be angry she should be pissed absolutely absolutely but you know so many other people would have been told to suppress that and would have suppressed that and so i'm i'm um i think i find it just really admirable that she's like absolutely fuck that shit. <laughs> 
Right. Um, yeah, there are a bunch of more names that I could mention, but we need to start wrapping it up. We've got two big names, probably the two heavy hitters left in the race to talk about. Should we talk about Elizabeth Warren first? We kind of talked about it already in terms of where we think we are with it. But what's her? what would be her strongest attribute? Her brain. <laughs> her sexy, sexy intellect. Size brain that I don't <laughs> Her brain and and equal parts brain and enthusiasm. Mm. Um, yeah, the woman's got great gift game. <laughs> <laughs> she does. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. I think for me, the thing that I'm most interested in is um, I think she could help us resolve one one of the anxieties that I have about this about this election, which is um, the ability to to bring together both parts of the Democratic coalition. Um, you know, there are progressives who I think probably are not going to, they're not going to vote for Donald Trump, the Sanders wing, I would hope not, but they might not vote as much. Some of them might vote third party. And even if only she, even if she only brings a small number of them on board or just excites a small number of them who are feeling uninspired by Joe Biden, I think that would be worth doing. Um, so, you know, I would, I would love to see that. And I would love to see, you know, also just from an ideological point of view, I would like to see the people who are calling for deeper structural, structural change have a voice in the administration at a very senior level. So I'm for that. Yeah, completely agree. Kamala Harris? Um, I mean, uh, she's probably the highest profile candidate of colour. Um, she uh, and and she has you know a different experience in that being mixed race. Um, she's got um, legal experience, which I know some hold against her, um, but actually the vast majority of people wouldn't. And I think at this moment when um, there's probably some equal parts nervousness about whether a Biden administration will do enough um, and whether a Biden administration will go too far um, from both you know, e both sides of the partisan divide. I think she probably a good candidate to bridge that gap. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's probably her strongest attribute. Um, yeah, it is, is just being someone who can make an argument for judicial change that doesn't make people um, who haven't been thinking about these things for as long as others um, too nervous. Yeah, I totally get that. I think I, I almost take a, a shallower perspective on it, right? Which is, I just enjoy her. Like, I think on the campaign trail, she brings a lot of joy mm. and fun and a spirit that's really engaging. I think she's a great campaigner. I know her presidential campaign didn't necessarily go as well as it could. I think she had some management problems on that campaign, which, you know, we would look at. But in terms of her personal performance, her debate performances, um, her speeches, everything she put herself out into public, I think she did a really good job. And I also have witnessed her in the Senate really kicking ass and taking names. So I think she would she would bring a lot of contrast. So I think well, I she think did knock Biden around quite a bit. <laughs> she did knock him around quite a bit, but she did it with a smile. <laughs> and I think and I think it's really telling that she could do that. That she could, you know, they they could stay they could stay 
um, friends while she still gave him, you know, a, a quite well-earned hard time. So, yeah, I think I think I, I just like her performance. I think she's a strong performer and I think we can use some of that in the campaign trail. Sometimes it is about the pizzazz. Yeah. Um, I, lo- I love a bit of pizzazz. She has got pizzazz. She doesn't bring a needed swing state. No, I think we're, uh, we're probably going to win California. I, I, if we don't win California, we're in a lot <laughs> more trouble than I thought. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, she's, she's a very strong candidate. Her and Biden would look fabulous together on the trail. Yeah. Um, yeah, she, and you're right. She, does, she brings equal parts fun and gravitas. Yeah. yeah yeah she can she can laugh when she needs to she can also be deadly serious and cutting like she's got a great a great range of personal performance that she can bring okay so if i were gonna hold your hand to the fire and say pick a name who would you pick right now not that i'm holding you to it for the duration of the contest but for today who would be the top of your list oh, that's really hard and um, i mean on a personal political level I, it would be Stacey Abrams for me. Um, on a electoral level, um, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> so Gretchen Whitmer? Um, yeah, except that I'm right about the fact that I think we should have a balanced ticket. Um, I It's so complicated. Uh, I yeah. think Gretchen probably does the best electorally. How much that's needed, I don't know. I think um, there are other candidates who excite me slightly more. Mm. Yeah, I also find it really hard because I think I can see advantages and disadvantages to everyone. And I don't think I don't think there is an obvious, you know, this person does everything candidate. Um, But I think for that reason and because I think Biden is in safe mode now, I think he I expect that he will. And I think that on the whole, he probably should go with Kamala Harris because I think she is the safe choice. She's not going to mess anything up. She has a national profile and a like big, big, you know, she's, she's used to being a Senator for a big state. Um, they, he's seen her close at work. He knows they can work together in the white house. Um, she's not going to piss anyone off. Like, oh, and she passes this, the, the, um, you know, he's, he's, a million years old test. <laughs> <laughs> she is not on the cusp of death. And so, yeah, uh, well, and not just that she's not on the yeah. cusp of death, but also that she could. If he died, she could lead today. Yeah. yeah. Like, and no one, no one would have trouble envisioning that. No, no. Um, so and that's yeah. kind of what I mean by safety. It's just, I, I think she would give people confidence and she wouldn't scare anyone off. And I know that sounds very uninspiring, but actually that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you know, what? That's kind of where the democratic base ended up was, um, I mean, with, with, you know, sweetheart Joe Biden, but yeah. <laughs> um, we definitely went for the safety option. Yeah. Uh, but there are unsafe things about that safety option, which we could balance with Kamala Harris, definitely. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think she'd be a good partner to him. I think she would help him in ways that he's weak. I think she would be strong. Yeah. Fine. Emma, as always, it has been an absolute delight to talk to you. And um, stay safe, stay well. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much, as always. Lovely to, uh, yeah, you you know I love doing it, so. (laughs) (laughs) You know I love having you. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Karen Jayar on Twitter. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it. Uh, uh, lovely five-star reviews on your podcast player of choice. Um, if you haven't liked it, please drop me a line on Twitter and I'll see what I can do better for you. Um, if you are an American listening to the sound of my voice, I beg you, please go and register to vote or request your absentee ballot. Um, it's going to be really challenging uh, at the polling booth this year, so get yourself straight out, sorted out straight away. Um, to avoid any problems in November. Please, please, please go to vote.org if you're an American at home or if you're an American abroad like me, the website is votefromabroad.org. I should let you know, as always, I am not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me here and I wish you a very happy week.